Hello and welcome to the Booker Prize podcast with me, James Walton. Me, Joe Hamia. We are trying something slightly new today. Uh, it's an episode on Booker classics and which indeed are deserving of the title. We're doing this because Alex Clark, friend of the show, who came on this podcast to talk about books we should all be excited for in 2024, you can mm-hmm. listen to that still, has written an article for the Booker Prize website on so-called Booker classics. She lists many well, <laughs> worthy titles such as PH Newby's uh, Something to Answer For and JL Carr's A Month in the Country. But there's a very interesting conversation going underneath that in Alex's article, which I suppose is how exactly do you define what a classic is? Now, Alex sort of brings up two points. One, quite explicitly and one tangentially the explicit point is that we tend to think of classics in terms of personal taste and indeed a lot of Alex's article revolves around her own reading habits the second is a question of time I suppose at what point is a book allowed to become a classic and overall I think this article is really interesting because it's happening in context of the Booker Prize which I suppose begs the question you know do you need an institution to sanctify a classic And also, I suppose, if you do, and the Booker Prize would be one of them, could we call all Booker novels classics? So with that in mind, we're going to be picking up those strands of conversation as we go. James and I have brought along three books each that we think are worthy of classic sort of status. We've done our best to choose as objectively as possible. But again, this might be a bone of contention between us both. I think um, with, you know, enormous respect to a friend of the show, Alex Clark. She sort of mentions books that she thinks should be classics, really. Mm. Uh, so the J.L. Carr and the, uh, the P.H. Newby. Yes. And um, I think we've gone for ones that we think just are. And Oh, get... I don't know. I've, I've definitely oh, I gone for I've, I've gone one bottom. that I think will be in future, but oh, okay. maybe isn't yet. I, I've possibly gone for one that once was, and that's an interesting question <laughs> as well. But um, but otherwise, pretty copper-bottomed. And I do think it is, I, I do think it is time. I I. I I mean, I haven't picked any books I don't like. That that is true, but um, I didn't just pick books that I think are masterpieces. Yeah. But, uh, which I, actually I might have, in that case, gone for How Late It Was, How Late by James Kelman, St. Yeah. Urban's Horseman by Mordecai Richler, who I'm always banging the drum for. Slightly faded now, Canadian Jewish author. So I think that was '71. That one is an amazing book about uh, you know uh, Canadian uh, exiles in in London in a way, but also looking back to his his growing up in Toronto and also a quest for Joseph Mengele mm. in, the, in the in the jungles of South South America, that, and it all fits together beautifully. But 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 I I think in a way classics aren't necessarily up to us. That there is some sort of general agreement that's taken place. Yes, we should talk about that in a second. But off the cuff and at the top, I think we should say there are many titles that I think readers will expect us to bring up, which we have either covered in previous podcasts or plan to in future ones, such as uh, Ian McEwan's Atonement, Kazuo Shigura's The Remains of the Day, or Margaret Atwood's uh, The Handmaid's Tale. I suppose what we're we're trying to do is is bring up titles that we haven't discussed before, just for your (laughs) listening pleasure and the diversity of what we're able to achieve. So more generally, James, I guess there's this big question we haven't still totally answered. What do we each think a classic actually is? What well, do you think a classic is? I was is? really hoping you would answer this because it's <laughs> so hard. And the more you think about it, the more it sort of falls apart in your hands, really. Yeah. So I, I quite, I'm quite happy to settle for the shorthand of a book, as I say, generally agreed to have stood the test of time. I think time has to be involved. I don't think. I mean, Shuggy Bain, I think, is 
I, I, I know I, I really, really loved it, and you didn't love it quite so much. But I, I pondered that as a even on the shortlist. But a, we've done it, and b, it's that's still only twenty twenty. So yeah. So who knows? So I think I think there has to be a certain passage of time, and let's be honest, there often has to be some other medium involved, really. So like the remains of the day, atonement, Schindler's Ark. The English version we've made. Is it a coincidence that all of those were pretty high level films as well? This is a really interesting point because I think basically part of what uh, makes a classic, insofar as we believe in that term, is that it's constantly sort of reintroduced into cultural conversation, maybe like once a decade or every two decades. So I think you're really right in that. I think the idea of time is a really interesting one. Um, People who are um, maybe sort of publishing heads or keep abreast of book news generally might remember an incident in 2013 where Morrissey's autobiography was published by Penguin Modern Classics and named a classic at the time of its publication. And a lot of people objected to this, but the terms on which they objected are like really fascinating ones, for me at least, to determine why something should be a classic. So that was that point of not enough time has passed. Although I believe Penguin made the argument that since Morrissey has been a prolific songwriter since the 80s and has definitely influenced the culture via his work with the Smiths, that's taken care of. The other part that people objected to, I suppose, was, again, a matter of personal taste. Some people just don't like the Smiths, so they don't think Morrissey is worthy or deserving of that. I, I mean, I read that, I think, Penguin... I, I th- read it I think, too. I thought I, it was I, amazing. I, I, sorry, no, I didn't read the book. I read the... Uh, the um, sorry. I, read, <laughs> I do love the Smiths. I, I even like Solo Morrissey, to be honest. But, but... Um, Ooh, controversial. I know. Well, there's still a lot of cracking stuff. Anyway, they published it as a pop Penguin modern classic, in my understanding, because Morrissey insisted that they did. And mm. I think Penguin is slightly embarrassed by that. They, mu- they must know. Oddly enough, it had the... Um, Useful um, side effect, I think, of restoring um, the word classic, restoring some meaning to the word classic, because I think on the whole, everybody said, you know, it can't possibly be a modern classic because it's only just come out. Yeah. It is far too early to tell. And that made people realise, actually, a classic does need a bit of time. So this is silly. And I think Penguin, if you took a Penguin executive out and gave him a few glasses of wine, I think they'd admit that it was silly to publish that as a, as a modern classic. Perhaps. So given that, uh, we're, you know, we're not in five minutes going to solve the problem of what is a classic that has t- taken up so much ink and so many volumes over so much time. Let's use it as a sh- can we, Joe, as a shorthand for we a can. book that we think is <laughs> another test that you might want to think is yeah. a book that people have heard of, that most people have heard of, even if they haven't read it. Is that is that a bit of a is that a bit of a thing? I suppose each generation will have its own kind of pertinent issues or concerns and I do think there's a way to kind of go above this as well such as a lot of classics you hear about are war novels and that's because war is never really something that goes away but then I was thinking about this the other night I think around the age of um, 16 I read The Count of Monte Cristo at school and it was kind of unanimously agreed that it was a classic But I asked around with my friends and they said, well, I've heard of it, but I don't really think it's a classic. And my theory is that we've all become, well, A, much less religious and B, much more neoliberal than that book's concerns really are. So the only thing that keeps it being a classic now is the fact that it's printed by a a subdivision or an imprint of a publisher that says it's a classic. And in some ways, I guess time either adds or takes away to from the notion of a classic 
depending on whether the cultural conversation happening at, in any given decade or period is aligned with the book. So at the moment, there's this really interesting thing going on where um, there are a lot of efforts on social media to cancel what I thought we'd all agreed were fairly classic authors for failing to have entirely 21st century sensibilities. So the, a lot of young men, women on TikTok object to Sylvia Plath being thought of as a classic author because they find her racist. Just very recently at the time of our recording, about no, about 200 to 300 millennials on Twitter tried to cancel Kafka, but not because of his <laughs> oh, work. Oh, Joe, <laughs> oh, please, pass me out, <laughs> start weeping but in a minute. But it's got nothing to do with his work, which is deeply concerned with, I suppose, um, the more existential aspects of life and everything to do with his sex life. I'm probably not allowed to talk about Kafka's sex life on this podcast, but please do pause now to Google it because it's amazing. Um, well, he was never going to be a carefree Lothario, was he, Kafka? <laughs> if you read the books, you're, there's a clue there. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there's this question of um, enough time needs to pass for a book to become a classic. But then are our social and political and economic interests you know, going to allow that book to remain a classic at any given point in time. I th but I think we could get bogged down in the entire episode here. We've got six books to get through. Yeah, Kim. I know. Why don't you kick us off with your first choice? Okay, well, I'm going to kick off with a copper-bottomed classic, uh, a book that's become almost a kind of book of mascot, in fact. And I'm going to let no one other than the Nobel laureate Kazuo Ishiguro introduce it. Salman, Salman Rushdie's um, uh, Booker Prize win in 1981 for Midnight's Children was an absolute turning point. Yes. That was a signal that a substantial key core um, group within the reading public had declared that you know, they were interested in reading books written by people apparently from the outside you know, about other societies from a different perspective, not from a British perspective. Because I think something was happening in British society at that point, not just in the literary culture, but in the wider culture. People had had suddenly moved on to a different era. So yes, it is indeed Midnight's Children by uh, Salman Rushdie, which has sold more than a million copies in the UK alone, book a winner in 1981, although its book of success didn't end there. Um, in 1994, uh, for the 25th anniversary of the prize, there was a thing called the Booker of Bookers, where three distinguished, uh, having said what I said before, it must be said men of letters, um, were asked to name the best uh, ever winner, and they went to Midnight's Children. And then in uh, 2008, for the 40th anniversary, although I, I made that the 39th myself, but anyway, um, there was a short list of six uh, book of winners drawn up by John Mullen, Mariella Frostrup, and Victoria Glendinning, so two women even. Uh, with the with the public, <laughs> Let it go, James. Okay, with the, with the public invited to vote on the winner. Uh, for the record, the uh, six that they named in 2008, I wonder what it would be like now, were The Siege of Krishnapur by J.G. Farrell, The Conservationist by Nadine Gordimer, Oscar and Lucinda by Peter Carey, Ghost Road by Pat Barker, Disgrace by J.M. Kurtzia and Midnight's Children. Uh, as you know, Joe, I'm all in favour of democracy. The trouble with having a public vote is that yeah, people could vote who hadn't read all six books. Mm. And you didn't have to prove you've read them or anything. So I think the most you famous... You just wrote, vote for the one you had read that you liked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The most famous and the most popular was always going to win. Uh, and that was and that was Midnight's Children. Uh, but but I think that's a, a fine example of a slightly dodgy process or questionable process leading to the right verdict. Because uh, in 2008, I had to do a newspaper piece on that on those six books. So I read them all 
pretty carefully, pondered them. And while all of them were obviously, you know, indisputably solid choices, um, the one that still filled, filled me with kind of astonished awe yeah. was uh, Midnight's Children by Salman Rushdie. So go on, why don't you tell us what it's about? All right then. Uh, the main character and uh, narrator is Salam Sinai, who begins the novel with this now celebrated passage. I was born in the city of Bombay, once upon a time. No, that won't do. There's no getting away from the date. I was born in Dr. Narlika's nursing home on August the 15th, 1947. And the time? The time matters too. Well then, at night. No, it's important to be more. On the stroke of midnight, as a matter of fact. Clock hands joined, palms in respectful greeting, as I came. Oh, spell it out, spell it out. At the precise instant of India's arrival at independence, I tumbled forth into the world. Mm. Okay, it's a cracking start, isn't it? And um, from there we flash back to uh, uh, Salam's uh, grandfather in Kashmir for an extended family tree intertwined with the history of India to the point of independence, uh, including the Amritsar Massacre in 1919, the partition of the British Raj into India and Pakistan. As for the Midnight's children of the title, they're the other people born between midnight and 1am on the day of independence, and they all have some sort of magical powers or gifts. The nearer to midnight, the more magical they are. So Salim's main gift is telepathy, making him able to hear the thoughts of all the other Midnight's children. Uh, 581 of them by the time he, he, he discovers this power on his 10th birthday. Uh, I would summarise the rest of the plot, or rather dozens of overlapping, recurring, suddenly appearing or suddenly disappearing plots, but that would take most of the rest of this podcast and possibly the next. Essentially, though, the intertwining of real history and endless, often wild storytelling continues with the storytelling ranging from the political to the comic, magic realism to satire, and sometimes all at the same time. So, interesting question now, in context of this podcast. Why do you think Midnight's Children is deserving of classic status? Well, partly because it's great. I'm going to push you, James. You've got to define great. (laughs) As I say, that whirling mix of stories, the language it's written in, and a high-key register. Well, And also, as as I I defer to my... um, uh, to Kazuo Ishiguro, there's something to do with the impact it made as well, I think. So by 1981, there'd been no shortage of books set in India that had done well in the book. Uh, there was wins for J.G. Farrell's The Siege of Krishnapur, Ruth Prower Javala's Heat and Dust, Paul Scott's Staying On. But all of these were about the British in India, and they're all written in, in on the whole in sort of well-mannered British literary prose. And, um, and that's as opposed to what uh, the critic John Walsh in his book on how the literary world changed in the 1980s, thanks partly to Rushdie, uh, called Rushdie's, quote, tumbling cascade of words, the jumping, bumping, hyperadrenalated, huggery-muggery, jiggery-pokery t- tsunami of special effects. <laughs> and in fact, it felt so new. It was, it was noted at the time, I do remember this, that this, this, was, this was something new. This was an Indian voice uh, writing about India, writing in a, a mishmash of Indian English and um, Hindu myths and, and all, sorts of, all sorts of stuff. And in fact, a lot of newspaper um, pieces at the time, all of which... Uh, as I remember, were headlined "The Empire Strikes Back." Um, so, so, so oh, it, that's it, terrible copywriting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, I suppose there might have been some criticism that he uh, in India, but that he wasn't quite as Indian as he made out, which I, which I think is is harsh because he, you know, he 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 was born in India the same year as Salim, nineteen forty seven, although not at the time of independence. He was born in June, and but then he did, he did come to England. He was educated at rugby school, boarding uh, public school, and then and then Cambridge, but. Um, but that's like saying George is not an Irish writer, you know, just because he, he wasn't in Ireland when he wrote Ulysses or something. Yeah. In fact, uh, English wasn't uh, Rushdie's first language, was, uh, which was Urdu, which is the language of the Muslims of India. And he grew up rooted in stories of Hindu myths, Arab- the, the Arabian Nights, a big deal for him, all his family stories. And he, he, said it, it, he once said that it taught him that it's best when stories are fabulous. 
when horses do fly. Hmm. But anyway, for now, I'll, I'll just leave it there. I'm going to come back at you with something very similar that maybe backs up all your sort of arguments for what deserves the status of a classic and say Ben Oakley's 1991 winner, The Famished Road. Uh-huh. I genuinely do think that The Famished Road is an incredible novel. And I think it's a really good example. It's a, it's a, one of the finer examples of that sort of category of author and um, category of book. Can you tell us what category of author, category of book? Tell us a bit more about it, basically. Yeah. Um, so The Famished Road is set in Nigeria. Um, its main character is called Azaro, and he is an abiku child or a spirit child. He exists between um, a world beyond life and he exists in life itself. He's constantly going between the two. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit here because I, I just want to capture, it's such a beautifully written book and it captures the kind of going back and forth between those two concepts very beautifully so this is Azaro who narrates the book and I should also say that the thing about spirit children is that their parents are always inducing them to to live and not to die and go over to the other side with passionate ritual offerings our parents always try to induce us to live they also try to get us to reveal where we had hidden the spirit tokens that bound us to the other world we disdained the offerings and kept our tokens of fierce secret and we remained indifferent to the long joyless parturition of mothers we longed for an early homecoming to play by the river in the grasslands and in the magic caves we longed to meditate on sunlight and precious stones and to be joyful in the eternal dew of the spirit to be born is to come into the world weighed down with strange gifts of the soul with enigmas and an inextinguishable sense of exile so it was with me how many times had i come and gone through the dreaded gateway how many times had i been born and died young how often to the same parents i had no idea so much of the dust of living was in me that's that's good Uh, listen i don't want to give the impression i'm not entirely familiar with The Famished Road by Ben Ockley, but um, <laughs> as with uh, Midnight's Children, I, I'm out giving the impression that it is just sort of wild storytelling, but actually there's a lot of solid political yeah. ang- anger as well, which I understand is true in The Famished Road, is it? Um, and the, a portrait of an of a, of a entire country. Over. I don't know if I would have ever used the word anger to describe this book. So, um, yes, it is a, a, a portrait of a, of a country, but I suppose more like the Odyssey than anything else i mean it's true that okri discusses he, he creates a kind of facsimile where he discusses political corruption in nigeria and poverty and uh, class inequality but this is all very grounded through characters that you come to know and love in a very particular way so um one of the most touching characters in the book for me is azaro's mother who suffers greatly on account of you know, sometimes losing her son and she never knows whether it's permanent or whether he'll come back to her. I guess on the more political kind of side, there's this character called Madame Koto who owns a bar that she frequently tries to kind of entrap Azaro within because she believes that he will bring her good luck and financial fortune. And as she becomes increasingly corrupt, there are these fantastic scenes of her buying sort of tiny American cars and fitting her kind of huge, massive, fleshy body into them and sometimes crashing them. It's a book that draws out an incredibly strong reaction in you one way or another. And I actually interviewed Ben a couple of years ago now about it. And I think he can put it 
much better than I can, so you can just listen to him talk about it. It's not, it's not the kind of book you can be in tune with that quickly. I thought maybe it would take about 20, 30 years. Reviews were divided. Some people were like, what's, he, what's wrong with him? Um, and there were some extraordinary reviews. Linda Grant's about reading The Famished Road and going out, walking out into the street, walking out and seeing angels in the trees after reading it. I think there were about two or three reviews like that. They did something amazing. And they started a lot of curiosity. Um, when people got it, they really got it. And when they didn't get it, they really didn't get it. I think that's, that's sort of so true what he's saying because it's a book that you have to read with so much generosity of soul, but also generosity of thought and time. Like you can't, you can't rush through a reading of The Famished Road. And I feel like Okri's completely sort of vindicated in the fact that what I've got with me is a vintage classics edition now, like, you know, maybe 30 years after the fact. But also um, recently the book was printed as an Everyman Library classic. So, so it says it on the cover. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it yeah, says yeah, it on the cover. And what more could you want? Just got one, one question for you, Joe. Some people might know uh, the Famous Road from its appearances in the in the book of uh, Bridget Jones's Diary, which she's always tr she's always trying to read it as a sort of part of her self improvement. So there's yes. one bit where she finds that she's she's got no mates one Saturday night, and she says, "Oh no, this is actually very good. Can now read the ben Stay in and read the Famous Road by Ben Oakley." At full stop. Yeah. At nine fifteen, blind date, very good. Just getting another bottle of wine. Yes. Uh, which gives you the impression that it's essentially hard going. Is it hard going? Um, I would say two things to that. It's so the Bridget Jones um episode is not the only time that it's kind of re-entered or been reimagined in a different medium. Um, it also comes up in the episode of The Simpsons, where a Nigerian princess visits Springfield, and um she starts handing out reading recommendations, and Ben Oakley's The Famished Road is yeah. one of them. So it does like sort of go to that thing that we were saying that a book has to sort of reoccur or be refigured in other ways pretty regularly be famous enough to be in an episode of the simpsons yeah is it hard going i mean it's not easy going but i wouldn't say that it's hard in the sense that it's difficult to read i mean like he his sentences are like really immaculate i suppose a it's very long and the print in my copies i've got two of them are very fine so it takes a while and b you have to give yourself over to it in the spirit that it's written in, which isn't totally intellectual and isn't sort of grounded in, I guess, the kind of logic that you would expect a classic if we're using this in a kind of anglophone, westernized sense to be grounded in. You have to kind of, this sounds like kind of a bit woo woo, but it, I mean it very seriously. You have to like open your mind to where Azra is going between worlds because otherwise it won't really have an impact on you. But I feel like A, Oakry helps you do this within the novel itself, and B, it's really worthwhile work. It's part of what makes this book a classic to me. You won't find yourself thinking, oh, I wish I'd never done that. Like that phrase from Linda Grant about walking outside and seeing angels in the trees, I totally believe it, because that's sort of what you get at the end of the book, maybe not in such a literal sense but i finished it and i just kind of felt myself expanding in a way yeah, no, and, and, and i mean the fact that it, it takes a, a bit of an effort to read is not something we're, we're against is it no there's the book of prize well, a lot podcast, of people are these days oh 
Anyway, uh, uh, back to me, I believe. Back to you. Uh, it's another thumper from me, I'm afraid. So I'm sorry to anybody who thought they could knock off these six classics in the next week. Um, it's Cloud Atlas by David Mitchell, mm. uh, shortlisted for the Booker in 2004, when it lost out to The Line of Beauty by Alan Hollinghurst, which <gasps> uh, might have a claim to classic status itself. I it think. does. I feel like it does, because I thought of it in my shortlist. And I was like, why? I don't remember anything about The Line of Beauty. And then I realised it's the first book I ever got taught at university. Oh, wow. So in my mind, it's like this big, massive thing. It's how I learned literature for the very first time. Anyway, um, uh, Cloud Atlas, uh, this is the hard bit, uh, explaining how it works. It consists of six sort of separate novels cunningly interwoven. Mm. So we start with the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing, which is narrated by an American lawyer in the mid-19th century who's in the Chatham Islands near New Zealand when he witnesses a Moriori slave being whipped by Maori overseer and then finds himself befriended by a villainous doctor. Then that cuts off mid-sentence to make way uh, for the letters, I don't know how to pronounce this, Zeldham, Z-E-L-G-H-E-M, anyway, that's in Belgium. And these letters are written in 1931 by Robert Frobisher, a penniless uh, British musician who's living in Belgium as an assistant to a once great composer and who uh, also comes across the first half of the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing and now wants to find the second half. Next comes a pretty good impression of a pulp thriller whose main character comes across the first half of the letters of Robert Frobisher and then a more comic tale of a publisher in the present day Britain who's reading the first half of the manuscript of that thriller and so on. Uh, you following this? Oh, you're yeah, I've read, read the book. Okay, so. <laughs> Do you think anyone else is who hasn't? So then there's half a tale set in a dystopian future uh, career and a whole tale set in an even more dystopian and even more future uh, Hawaii. And that tale we get in full and that becomes a kind of fulcrum because then we get the second half of each of the other novels or sections uh, in reverse. So there's also a firm suggestion that um, all the main characters share the same soul. The sort of yeah. moving of souls between characters is a big thing in David Mitchell. Um, and also there's certain recurring themes to suggest these are in all times and all places aspects of human history which which are um, particularly um, uh, the tendency of people to prey on each other, to form tribes and to... To treat each other as prey. We've gone for very spiritual texts, haven't we? Yeah. I'm interested because I've read Cloud Atlas and I wouldn't have necessarily, sorry, David Mitchell, but I wouldn't have necessarily put it on our list or a short list. Well, I uh, see, I'm going to, I'm going to say that, um, um, it, it sounds a bit complicated because <laughs> it is. At one point, there's the, the present day publisher, uh, a pompous bloke called Timothy Cavendish says, as an experienced editor, I disapprove of backflashes, foreshadowings, and tricksy devices. They belong in the 1980s with MAs in postmodernism. Because that itself, that remark, mm. is a tricksy device, because this is in a book full of you know, foreshadowings, backflashes, <laughs> tricksy devices of all kinds. And, uh, in fact, just a little in-joke as well, because David Mitchell got an MA in postmodernism. <laughs> yeah, the, it in shows the in the book. <laughs> I fear I'm making it sound as if it's a, a book that, um, you know, for academics to sort of stroke their chins to and, and write about. But, Actually, the most remarkable thing about the book is that world is that Cloud Atlas turned out to be completely world conquering, mm. I mean, a massive global bestseller. And I would suggest one of the few intricately constructed nests of century-spanning stories, not not just to have become a global bestseller, but also a movie starring Tom Hanks and uh, Halle Berry and Ben Whishaw. Yeah, and made by the uh, Wachowskis, who most famous for The Matrix. And I think the reason it became so popular. Mm is that basically David Mitchell, he's pulled off the same trick that the Beatles once did, which is you know hailed by the critics for their amazing experimentation and also just loved by the average punter. And the reason he's done it, I think, is for the same reason the Beatles did, because no matter how experimental they got, they never forgot the, basis, you know, the basics of a, a bloody good tune. And the books are filled with the literary equivalent 
of, of bloody good tunes. I'm a plot and character guy, he said. And, and I think he is. There's cliffhangers. There's um, just great, great uh, again, great storytelling, goodies and baddies. Um, and at the risk of overdoing the Beatles analogy, but I'm <laughs> going to go for it. At the end of Cloud Atlas, basically a rewrite of Imagine by John Lennon. So this is, if you've been following, the second half of the Pacific Journal of Adam Ewing, the first half having kicked off the book. And now we're right at the end, back with the second half. If we believe that humanity may transcend tooth and claw, if we believe diverse races and creeds can share this world as peaceably as the orphans share their candlenut tree, if we believe leaders must be just, violence muzzled, power accountable, and the riches of the earth and its oceans shared equitably, such a world will come to pass. Mm. That is just imagine, isn't it? <laughs> I am not deceived. That's you may say I'm I'm a dreamer, etc. Uh, and funnily enough, Cloud Atlas is based on uh, so David Mitchell's book before that was Number Nine Dream, uh, taking its title from a John, a John Lennon song, and Cloud Atlas itself takes its title from a work by the Japanese composer Toshi Ichiyanagi, who was Yoko Ono's first husband. Ah, there we are. So that's a little bit. Oh, we all know you're a massive Beatles fan. Okay, a little bit. James, so that's why it's ended up here. But there is fun in in fitting it all together. There there is a certain intellectual fun in that. But what you fit together is enormous fun to read too. I think. Right. So I'm glad you've brought up the concept of a sort of bestseller feeding into things because I think that does sort of introduce the question of um, how well a publisher produces and manufactures the book. Bestsellers don't become bestsellers on their own. My next choice is kind of left of centre, but I'm going to try and explain it in those terms. It's Autumn by Ali Smith, which was shortlisted in 2017. Arguably not enough time has uh, gone by for this to become a classic. It hasn't even been 10 years. Um, It is... uh, It is about a relationship between two people and it's set in 2016. So one character is called Elizabeth and she is very much the book's sort of future forward character. I think when she's first introduced, she's done so through a lot of numbers and metrics and she's trying to get a passport visa. Um, You know, she's thinking about what time she needs to get somewhere and she's getting a particular bus. But then in contrast to that, the second character is an art collector called Daniel Gluck, who is 101 years old at the time the novelist set. He actually spends most of it asleep. And through him, I suppose, Ali Smith explores a kind of long durée of history. So Elizabeth belongs firmly to 2016. And I guess through her, we get a portrait of 2016 Britain, which was Brexit Britain. There's a chapter which starts all across the country there was misery and rejoicing all across the country what had happened whipped about by itself as if a live electric wire had snapped off a pylon in a storm and was whipping about the air above the trees the roofs the traffic all across the country people felt it was the wrong thing all across the country people felt it was the right thing all across the country people felt they'd really lost all across the country people felt they'd really won all across the country people felt they'd done the right thing and other people had done the wrong thing all across the country people looked up google what is eu all across the country people looked up google moved to scotland and so on it goes so it does sort of I think Smith attempts to capture the confusion of that time, but she grounds it in Gluck's dreaming and also through the story of how Elizabeth and Daniel met. Didn't this come out in 2016? Wasn't that the the, the miracle of it? Exactly. That's what I'm getting to. Uh-huh. Um, so it's a good book. Um, some people really adore it. I I sort of just 
like it. But I'm not basing my choice on the kind of text itself. I'm basing it on the fact that the way that it was published is kind of a miracle. So um, Smith had been saying for a decade or possibly two decades that she wanted to write books based around the seasons and they would be a quartet. And she said this to her publisher who went, oh, great, I'll just mock up some covers then. <laughs> and he came up with these four really beautiful, I've got a paperback, but the hardbacks are sort of amazing, cloth-bound covers wrapped in a David Hockney print that shows the same sort of tunnel or like Greenland throughout differing seasons. And once Smith and her publisher, Hamish Hamilton, had these covers, which existed first as casings until the books were actually printed, they embarked on this, like, I've never heard of this being done before, and I'm fairly sure it hasn't been. They embarked on this mission of essentially, Smith would write the book in a matter of months, and then they would take six weeks to publish it. Book publication schedules are usually a year, if not two years long. I'm doing one now and it's long. Six weeks is crazy. And I think in this way, autumn really does belong to a kind of niche of books that we're starting to see emerging out of the 21st century, which are utterly devoted to the present moment, both in terms of their content and in terms of how they're published. So Olivia Lang's Crudo is another one like that that reads like a Twitter fever dream. In terms of plot, maybe Patricia Lockwood's um, Nobody is Talking About This, it's a much more sort of hyper and funny and less meditative book, but still deeply attuned to the present. And I think within the next kind of 50 to 100 years, books like Ali Smith's Autumns are going to be considered a kind of very particularly 21st century classic. Very interesting, and a kind of turning point in the whole of literature. I think Martin Amos said that one of the problems is that all novels are historical novels by the time they come out. But this is something that's trying to get around that, isn't it? I suppose what really impresses me about this one is that it's a historical novel, not just because of what's inside it, but the actual making of it. You could not do that in the 20th century. You could not just take no. six weeks to publish a book. This is in every aspect including in its production a 21st century you know up to the moment my twitter feed is refreshing you know i um have the latest news in my hand at all time 21st century book well i see i see your attempt to get round the whole idea of a historical novel by publishing a, a present day novel almost <laughs> uh, and my final choice is a historical novel uh, would have been a completely obvious choice of a book of classic uh, maybe 20 25 years ago I've a slight fear that it's faded a bit since then and I, I think I checked with you and it wasn't massively on your radar, Joe. Although it is described in its Amazon blurb as a modern classic, so, mm. so it defo is. Uh, and it is um, Waterland by Graham Swift, one of the biggest novels of the 1980s, later a film with Jeremy Irons, book was shortlisted in 1983. Uh, Graham Swift actually went on to win with uh, Last Orders in 1996 when the following morning he made a famously hungover appearance on Radio 4's The Today programme. <laughs> it's fantastic. He just, and after a while he just gives up. He says, look, I, I, I can't, they're asking me about the nature of, you know, fiction with a with a literature and he just says look look give me a break <laughs> anyway i read waterland at the height of waterland mania so um and i thought it was amazing but i hadn't read it since so i was a bit worried you know returning to it as you always are to see if it would stand up but it really really does i mean it is quite like midnight's children in a way with a life of one man in, intertwined with a wider history with loads of stories tons of incident um including but not restricted to murder suicide madness and incest the race a guy called tom crick who's a history teacher in london uh, in his 50s and uh, he's just lost his job because uh, the headmaster is cutting back on history. It's quite a it's quite a Thatcherite book actually. There was a time where 
um, everything had to pay its way. So what, what good is I history? I think we're in that time again now. <laughs> and he's got a, his childless wife, Mary, has also stolen a baby from a, a local supermarket. So the question is... As you do. His question is why? Um, and one of the themes of the book, uh, partly because he's a history teacher, is that the history of anything is the history of everything. And I, I'm really interested in this. It's an idea that's always appealed to me. I mean, just take, for example, let's say me. You know, <laughs> centuries of Irish history... Uh, are needed just to get my mum and dad to meet in Liverpool in the 1950s. Yeah. Their whole life depends quite a lot on uh, the welfare state of the post-war Atlee government, which came about because of the war, which came about because of, let's say, the First World War, which came about because of so-and-so. So uh, all of that, and he, he has an attempt in this book to sort of do that. It's set in the Fens, actually, despite this is where Tom and Mary grew up. We get a whole history of the Fens and how, how they met there, how his father uh, came to live in a lockkeeper's cottage. But the idea, I think, the way it mixes the story with, we find out eventually what, what trauma lay behind why Mary stole the baby. But it, it's linked to the, to the fens themselves, because the fens were once uh, water, and then they reclaimed as dry land. But that reclamation never lasts very long, because the water always comes back. And that's, that's sort of what happens to us too, I think the book suggests. So Tom says at one point, whatever moves forward will also move back. It is a law of the natural world and a law, too, of the human heart. So that reclaiming any sort of solid ground is always going to be temporary because the waters will sweep back. Mm. And that's done, it's done with beautifully. Lit, lit, the literal way in which that happens is fantastic. The fens themselves are, as we literary critics like to say, become a character in themselves, Joe. But, um, but the story itself is great. And the ideas that the novel wrestles with and ponders are uh, very interesting. <laughs> if that's not too weedy a word, no. so, uh, so and it's a it's a great book. So, but it's so, but you've suggested at the top that it's sort of fading out of people's imagination. How, do you think it's going to come back, or are you sort of? This is very interesting. This is very meta, actually. Are you making a case for it here, and potentially this will feed into the Waterland becoming a classic? Again, so it, it's not a book that's been on your radar, particularly. Though. No, not at all. Oh, oh, it's sad. But um, it's it's no. I, I don't. I mean, you know, I'd like to think that you know one appearance on the Booker Prize podcast and pow, it's back on top of the bestseller list. I just think it's very interesting to imagine like a world in which you know someone goes out after this podcast, reads The Waterland, potentially they work in publishing, and they're like, let's rejacket it as a classic. Yeah, there was a you know? well, actually, there was a twenty fifth anniversary book, but even that's, I suppose, what two thousand and eight. And what's interesting in that? What I really like about this book, and I think it's true of. Ben Ockery and, and the Summer Rusty, is it's great when a writer hits his stride, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Just goes for it. So this was his third book. He'd written two pretty good books before, but this one you just get the sense that he's just going to go for it. And in the introduction to the 25th anniversary, he says, you know, it was a, I was flexing my literary muscles. And he says at one point, it was a bit of a show-off book in a way that slightly embarrasses me now. Mm -hmm. I just love him showing off. And, mm -hmm. and, and again, Rush, you know, Midnight's Children, Rushdie is showing off. And, and it's, it's just marvellous to see a writer in absolutely full flow, just thinking, sod it, I'm going for this. Okay, well, interestingly, James, I my final pick is probably, you could think of it as a historical novel as well. It's John Berger's G. I think John Berger has always had either a mass or a cult following, but I think sometimes you'd be surprised just exactly where he pops up. So most recently in the intro to supermodel Emily Ratajkowski's book kind of prologue g though i think is genuinely like very genuinely deserving of classic status it's a kind of reimagining of the don juan figure against the backdrop of a 20th century and there are i suppose 
two modes or three modes really in which the book happens. So you've got G, who is the central character. I suppose it's a Bildungsroman in respect of us watching him come to maturity. Come to maturity, we hear about um, the circumstances of his birth. Um, he was born to a very rich Italian father and his English mistress. And we hear about the first time he ever has sex with a much, much younger woman uh, uh, not, against not, not the backdrop the last, of. Sorry, not the last time he has sex either. No, not at all. Um, the pertinent thing is the first time he has sex is happening against the backdrop of a of a workers strike and this is kind of a recurring theme in the book that G's philandering is always grounded in some sort of greater historical event so while he may be um, cavorting with another man's wife the Boer War is also happening or the world's first aviation attempt which is going to sort of map land masses in a geographical sense is also occurring and G comes to maturity in a um, a much more spiritual way than just having sex. But I suppose the sex is important because when you have these things, these two things coming together, you, I guess, sort of, mm, it's that very hackneyed phrase, isn't it? The personal is political. Right. So G, you will never find G having uh, sex in a non-political moment <laughs> in this book. Um, Berger kind of quite frequently interrupts the narrative um, with a voice. It's partly his voice, partly the voice of a quite humorous narrator to kind of discourse at length about you know, various things, so socialist politics or why it's impossible to write about sex in the first place, why it always ends up so lacking. Um, there are several very funny illustrations of a penis going into a vagina they're incredibly crude in every sense of the word actually um there's an article on the booker website that calls it potentially paternalistic but not in a professorial way more in a sort of um berger wants to hold your hand while he takes you through the world in a quite open way because he's also famous as an art critic isn't he so. yes yes he is um, I suppose the thing that also makes this book famous is what happened when it won the Booker Prize in 1972, which is that Berger got up on stage and there are quite a few um, people present at the ceremony already didn't like the book itself for being so sort of filled with sex and inappropriate and socialist. Shock horror. Um, but Berger got up on stage and um, announced that he was going to give half of his prize money away to the London Black Panthers and that he would use the remaining half um, traveling across Europe in order to write, I can't remember whether at the time it was already going to be a novel, but a book that would essentially create a history of um, socialist workers in in Europe. I would I would argue that the the kind of notoriety of that ceremony is is a large part of why the book remains in people's cultural imaginations. If you say John Berger's G, they're not going to talk to you about Don Juan myths and you know sexual escapades and socialism and war in Europe and part of Africa um they're going to say isn't wasn't that written by the bloke who gave half his money to the London Black Panthers but but you think just as a book just free from all that it's a it's a great book I think it's an amazing book but I think I think it's really important I think as we've been saying in the vein of sort of film adaptations etc there has to be something about a book that keeps it in your cultural imagination and for G it's this then scandalous, now massively honourable, you know, context of what happened when it won the prize. 
Anyway, we, we, we better leave it for there. I think we did manage to cram in six uh, solid classics into uh, into one episode. It was pretty good. Quick question, just out of curiosity. Yeah. Outside of the book and library, what would you have chosen as a classic book? Uh, the, the top three, which might actually restore the uh, the, the gender balance, uh, would be um, Middlemarch by George Eliot. Yeah. I think Jane Eyre might just sneak past Ulysses and then uh, David Copperfield, definitely. Lovely. I think I probably would have gone for Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. I'm always banging on about Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse. Um, I would have gone for Glass and God by Anne Carson, which isn't a novel, it's a book of poetry, but still. And I would have gone for Leo Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, which I'm always, again, banging on about but it's just a flawless book still one of my favorite memories of last year was you on the red carpet at the book of prize ceremony with that kind of gen z magazine saying any you know for our young readers what would you suggest and you said it's got to be anna karenina by tolstoy this was not the answer she was expecting anyway uh, we we really must leave it there so uh, thanks very much for listening uh that is it for this week to read Alex Clark's article on classic Booker books that inspired this episode, head to thebookerprizes.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok and Substack at The Booker Prizes. And you can also join our book group on Facebook, which ha- yielded some interesting results for this episode, didn't it, James? Yeah, there's there's um, frenzied voting going on on there at the moment as to what Booker books should be considered classic. So uh, by all means, join in that debate. I hear at the moment that uh, Milkman by Anna Burns is ahead at the moment, which would have failed our rather strict criteria. No, that book. makes me so happy. I don't have criteria because we actually, did. We had a criteria. Which was Spoiler it can't be alert. too it can't it had it can't be too recent. I don't know. I don't believe in classics. Is the big reveal at the end of this episode. So I'm really happy for Anna Burns. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by me, Joe Hamier, and by James Walton. It was produced and edited by Kevin Moyolo, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It is a Daddy's Super Yacht production for the Booker Prizes. 